Even hotter as we look at Colossians, uh, Paul fires up and gets pretty heated in this one. So please open up to Colossians 2. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'd love to afterwards. We'll have a Q&A tonight. And so uh, you can throw in some questions, of course, there. But I'd love to personally engage and uh, meet with you as well. Uh, make you feel very welcome. If you're looking for a church, I pray this becomes a, a, a place where you're blessed and decide to spend your time. <clears throat> May I have one of the blessed deacons or gentlemen to grab me a... Uh, uh, a refill of the water, please. I'm going to need it. Uh, it. It is a hot one. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 is where we will be. And we, were, we had the privilege and honor of having uh, Pastor Warren McKenzie of Biota Baptist Church last week here to open up verse 1 to 7. And uh, before that, of course, our own uh, uh, amazing uh, Vic talked to us the end of chapter 2 while I was away on mission. It's a pleasure to be back among you. I missed church three times a day. I'm glad we're back in the house of the Lord. Please look at uh, uh, verse eight, which is where our reading will begin. The word of God reads like this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been made, sorry, having been uh, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. May God bless his own inerrant word in our midst this evening. Amen. What a glorious and red hot portion of scripture. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, ever, ever loved reading missionary biographies. I commend that you do so. One of my, one of my favorites is a lesser known one by the name of David Jones. Uh, he, he was not the founder of, of the Australian uh, 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 shopping center. David Jones was actually first a, a missionary from Scotland. And he went back in the 1800s to Madagascar. And there, along the, the Sentinelese people uh, on, the, uh, on the island uh, there in Africa, he, he witnessed and, and, uh, and, and proclaimed Christ and established a church in his own blood, in the blood of the martyrs that he saw converted and killed. But one of the things that was unique about his ministry that you just don't get everywhere in pastoral ministry as he was evangelizing and as he was in missions, one of the dangers for his people was that they were constantly being visited by the Arabs and visited by the French sailing ships who would then purchase large swaths of those African people from the other African tribes as slaves and take them off to the Arab world and to France as slaves. He was not just dealing with philosophical slavery. 
He was not just dealing with religious, spiritual slavery. He actually had to warn his people in a very practical sense how to avoid the slave raiders, how to avoid being taken and thrown off into the slave trade and captivity. And that is just a a beautiful and perfect, an an ugly, an ugly picture, but a perfect picture of what what the missionary mind, what the pastoral heart has to deal with. That is a good picture as Paul opens up this text this evening. He says, see to it, take care, watch out for the danger. This is within your power by the Holy Spirit. You see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. The language is of of literal slave raiding as men would arrive on foreign shores or break through other uh, the 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 borders of other tribes and go in and steal people take them away sell them off and they would live a life of captivity. If you were if you were to be that pastor David Jones in the Centenalese area as he was telling people what, what advice would you give? Obviously the advice is stay with the tribe. Don't go off wandering on your own. Don't see new and beautiful ships arriving to shore and think you'll have a tourist day of it. They're here to take you away. Stay deep in the jungle. Stay away from the edges. Hide yourself within the trees. Well this is similar to what Paul the missionary is telling the Colossians as he's heard the two Colossae, as he's in house arrest over in Rome, 10 years earlier, the church was planted through, through somebody that was converted by Paul. So Paul's preaching in Ephesus. Epaphras gets saved. He goes back home and he plants the church of Laodicea and Colossae and Hierapolis. And then while Paul is 10 years later in, uh, uh, in prison in about the year 62 in Rome in house arrest, he, he gets a visit from Epaphras and Epaphras warns him and asks for help because there's heretics circling the church like sharks. They're circling the church of Colossae. They haven't been given over to it yet. You know, the the church hasn't given way. It's not like Galatia. We haven't given up on the original gospel. We haven't pursued Satan in that way. But there is a severe danger for the church. And so Paul writes to them. And he has been so constantly uh, 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 zealous and, and desperate and continuous in his exhortations. You, you need to realize that if ever you think there's a problem with your pastor, you, you could be right, sort of beside the point. You're probably wrong. Let's assume that. But if you ever think that one of the problems with your pastor is that they just keep on banging on one note and they don't really move and repeat all, all other doctrines quite as often or tell as many other stories quite as often as they just keep on preaching Christ and him crucified and Christology and his person and his finished work. It's just the theme of almost every sermon. The problem's with you. If you ever think that, you know, gee, we've really banged on this. Like, we, we get it. We're all good Christological students. We understand all of us can answer the catechism questions. All of us can fight all of the heretics that come in here and try and steal people. We're all good. We've got it. If that's your mindset, you're not good. You haven't got it. There is never such thing as being too repetitious about the truthfulness, the sufficiency, the fullness that is in Jesus Christ, in his person and his work. Absolutely never. And so we come back today. I say all of that as a precursor because we come back tonight to the same themes as we've been talking about every single week in Colossians, which is that God has invested all of his power into Jesus Christ, that God has invested all of his saving grace and his saving purposes in his Son. 
that there is sufficiency and fullness of salvation in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Any other sign or any other temptation, any other teaching, any other way of seeking God outside of the finished work on the cross of Jesus is anathema and blasphemous and we have no time for it. It's been the constant battering ram of Colossians. And so here we are today, again, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit. He's, he's really taken a shot at this whole, these, these other teachings that are out there. He's just called them empty and deceitful. He's using the word empty because the Colossian heresy was, was really an early stage of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught that one of its temptations, one of its, uh, you know, the bait on the end of the hook that it would offer to Christians was a, was a spiritual fullness. That you can sort of just be bursting at the brim always with this spiritual power and activity and angelic action because you can receive through their teaching and their visions and their experiences and their cultic pagan practices, you can receive the fullness so Paul is saying here is that they're actually not here to give you anything. They're here to take you away as captives. And what they're teaching you is not full. It's not, I mean, it's full of something, but you can't say it in church. He says it's empty. That's what it's got. It's absolutely empty. And it is deceitful. Because it is empty and then labeled full, it is therefore deceitful. It's a lie. They have, they have nothing to offer. That's why cults, that's why cult members, that's why wolves and their, and their teachers are always so deceptive. They're always talking through sleight of hand. They're always sneaking around in the shadows. They're offering you one thing while trying to get you to believe another. That's why they always use orthodox Christian language. Yeah, we're, we're Christians. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and then on the cross, he justified us for our sins. A Mormon says that. And by Christian, they mean a Latter-day Saint. By Jesus being the Son of God, they don't mean one with God, but they mean created by God. And by dying for our sins, they mean making us able to work for our salvation. They're always so deceitful. So they are both empty and they are deceitful. And therefore, he's saying, don't chase after them. Don't be tempted by them. Run from them because they are seeking your life. <clears throat> he's ultimately saying that they are all other teachings that are not according to Christ are according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world. You'll see that in, in verse 8. He says, don't get taken by these things which are according to human tradition and are according to the elemental spirits of the world and the real problem is that they are not according to Christ. He speaks here of, uh, of human tradition. Now, it, it might, if you're doing your maths and you sort of think the church has only been here for 10, 10 years and the, the church in Colossae had only been there for 10 years, but the church at all had only really existed for about 30 years in the world, right, since Jesus had resurrected. How can he really speak of tradition? Like, isn't tradition, I think, we often think of, if you were to be warned against a real hyper-traditionalistic type of Christianity or teaching, you would assume somebody means old ancient, old-fashioned, lots of outdated practices, and you go, you know, there's, there's that sort of legalistic traditionalism. When the New Testament speaks of traditions, it doesn't so much mean an old-fashioned way of doing things that has been handed down without much reason. He's mainly meaning that tradition is something created by mankind, and therefore the only authority that they can pass it down to somebody else is, well, the fact that they did it. The fact that somebody else said so, so it's now just passed down by, by assumption, by borrowed authority, but not according to true authority on the word of God. 
So you see this in Mark chapter 7, that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, and he says that they are making void the word of God by teaching as doctrines of God the doctrines of man. And as we sort of think of Pharisees, we probably jump to the fact that to be a Pharisee, to, to, to teach the tradition of man is, is to add laws to the Bible. And that's sort of too simplistic. The problem with the Pharisees and the problem with people who seek after human tradition, biblically speaking, is not just that they add laws and become legalistic. The Pharisees added to the law of God and took away from the law of God. The, don't think old-style legalism when you hear the word tradition. Rather think of the word editing the word of God. That's what human tradition does. It makes up new religion. It makes up new doctrines, new ideas, new ways of doing things based on human tradition. And we have no shortage of our own sort of versions of that in our own day, of people trying to represent God, but editing his revealed word and adding to it their own fangled ideas. We, one of the big ones today that has no doubt permeated our culture and started creeping it, not started, she's in the church, is pluralism. These ideas that there's, it's okay for you to believe what you believe, as long as on top of everything you believe, you also believe that everything everybody else believes is just as valid and, uh, and warrantable. That you can, you can have whatever theology you want, any Christology you want, have any view of the Bible you want. You just have to premise it all by saying, and if you disagree, it doesn't matter. We're all good. This is, the, this is the creed of our day. If, they, if our culture believes anything strongly, it's that you're not allowed to believe anything altogether strongly. And the second you do, you get the B word. You are a bigot. And it's crawled its way into the church. That's why we have a meeting today on this Lord's Day. There are blasphemous groups uh, meeting all over the place in places called churches. And they, they got a gal in a robe and she's there in the New Anglican parish and she'll have a rainbow scarf on and she'll do the blessing of the animals and then the funerals for, for dead spirits and they'll integrate uh, indigenous Australian ideology into the Genesis account and they'll, they'll honor other religions. They'll have Buddhists quotes on the, on the bulletin and they'll quote from the Hindus and they'll get a feminist leading scholar to come up and tell us how we've all got the Bible wrong for a long time and the men need to sit down and apologize. None of that was made up. I've seen it all. Pluralism has snuck its way in and, and with pluralism, all of the other stupid, idiotic human traditions that are teachings of man and not of God. The word of God, if we start wanting to, to pound this, this theology and put it up as, as true of the sufficiency of Christ, grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, if we want that, you have to take with it sola scriptura, that all that we believe is ultimately by the word of God alone and not by human tradition. And here's the next phrase he throws in soon after that, in the very next, uh, very next words, which get, get to the fact of why he's being so emphatic about human tradition. He says, according to human tradition, comma, according to the elemental spirits of the world. He's not, he's not starting to make a new list now. He's just conditioning what he just told you. When you have human teaching about God, not based on the word of God, when you have humans telling you how to get right with God, not based on the word of God, when you've got humans designing church and designing ethics and designing all of this spiritual stuff outside of the realm of the word of God, you don't just have false teaching. You have false spirits. 
The language here of the elemental spirits of the world is, the, is, is you know, the, the lesser spiritual beings that are at play in this world. That's what he means. Teaching is much more than just the passing on of facts. Truth, in biblical terms, is a lot more than just facts. And falsehood and false teaching is a lot more than just being incorrect. It is permeated with, often empowered by, and leading us to spiritual death and darkness. This is why you read the Gospels, you see how Jesus, especially in John's Gospel, See how he, he almost personalizes the language of truth and light and, and binds them together. And, you know, if, if, if you are in falsehood, you're a son of the devil. Being led by your father, the devil. If, if you have the truth, he'll say in John 8, you are, the truth sets you free. It's always in the biblical mindset. And here in, in Paul's language, false teaching and true teaching are way more than just true things and false things. They are, they are the, the weaponry of two opposing armies. If falsehood is being allowed and listened to and brought into the church, it's much more than just wrong facts. It's demonic, elemental, spiritual behavior and activity. And where there is truth, it is much more than just good, correct things. It is where the Spirit of God is empowering the people of God by that very truth. So the, the warning is so clear, so strong. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For the Christian, it is not enough that a church, when asked, gets theologically correct the questions about the person and work of Jesus. It's not enough that the statement of faith technically affirms that Jesus is fully God and truly man that he has been eternally God and one with God, that he is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, and that he was born of a virgin Mary, and that he therefore took on a true human body and soul, lived a perfect life, died a death in our place, rose again for us, and now rules at the Father's right hand. It's not enough that those things, the person and the work of Jesus, are agreed to. For the Christian, it has to be that the person and the work of Jesus are unapologetically, emphatically, primary in everything they do. All of their sermons, all of their mission trips, all of their evangelism, all of their discipleship, all of their teaching, it is all about Jesus. So that, so that it's not just that false teachers come in and tell you all, all opposite things to the true doctrine. It actually starts out that they come in and they just distract a little bit. They just turn you a few degrees to the right and tell you to go in that direction and before you know it, you're miles off course. It's just that they come in and they, they make those primary things of priority, which is Christ and him crucified, secondary. And now the Holy Spirit is primary. We, we haven't thrown away Jesus. He's just tucked nicely in behind the gifts of the Spirit, behind the, the wealth and health, behind the personality cult behind the, the, the sovereignty of God theology. No, Jesus Christ is the center of all of our theology. It must be so. Or we have started to be taken captive. Now, here's, here is six reasons why we do not need to be tempted by any of this stuff which comes to take us captive. 
He's going to talk here about the, the fact that in Christ, we have fullness. In Christ, we have circumcision, true circumcision. In Christ, we have death and resurrection. In Christ, we have forgiveness. In Christ, we have the cancellation of debt. And in Christ, we have the disarming of all of our spiritual enemies. So let's start with number one. In verse nine and 10, we see that in Christ, we have fullness. Look at this. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You remember that the language of fullness that the Gnostics like to put on, put on display and tempt you with? They, they would say, you can be made filled through our teaching and his Paul saying, no, no, no. We are already filled in Christ. But one of the other ways that he's being completely subversive and, and in their mind blasphemous to the Colossian heretics is that he is saying, he, he, is, he is disregarding two of their main doctrines. Two of the Gnostic doctrines which were so core is that first of all, there is no one being that has the fullness of deity. The fullness of deity is divided up pretty equally among all of what they call the Pleroma, all of the multitude of gods that started with one arch god and then he made another who made another who made another. And these, these are kind of angelic, semi-god beings and it's the, it's the last one who is the most evil of them who created this physical world. So there's the first doctrine that they had, that the deity was split up amongst many, uncountable, innumerable beings, and it was bigotry. It was, in fact, blasphemy to claim that any one God had all the deity. You're just missing out. But then the second doctrine that they had was that because this world was created, the physical world was created by that evil God, by the foolish, mischievous God at the end of the line, therefore, all of those gods, because they love us, what they want to help us do is escape the physical world. They will never come down. They will never take on a body, but they will help us escape our body through angelic visions. And when we die, here's the good news, you never get a body again. So here's Paul with the subversive gospel. And he says, actually, the fullness of deity dwells in one being. His name is and has eternally been Yahweh, the Lord, the one true living God. And guess what? That one true living God did come into our world, not just in a spiritual presence or show or vision, but he dwelt bodily in the person of Jesus Christ, a cell in his mother's womb, birthed out through the normal means, grew up as a regular human would, lived a perfect human life, died in that body, and guess what? That wasn't freedom. He came back into that body, glorified it, and tells us we get another body in our resurrection. He's just completely obliterated and destroyed and blown up the entire idea that the Colossians could have a bit of the Gnostic heresy and a little bit of Paul's gospel. They had to entirely reject the false teaching because here's Paul saying, in him, look again in verse 9. He couldn't have said it clearer. In him, the whole Fullness, he's doubled up the words there. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's just destroyed their entire conception of Christology and established them back in the biblical mindset. But verse 10 goes on, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. That is to say, Jesus is not one of the rules and authority. He's not one of those angelic beings. 
He doesn't answer to any of those angelic beings. He's the head of all of those angelic beings. Any rule in the spiritual realm, any authority in the spiritual realm answers to Jesus because Jesus made them. Jesus will judge them. He's the head above them and before them. He's not one of them. And then where it becomes gospel for us, not just interesting factoids about history, but true gospel for us is that Paul says in verse 10, and you have been filled in him. Now, this, is, this pushes back against pantheism and panentheism and silly paganistic ideas like that, that, that if we become one with the universe enough, if we do our, our, our deeds and our religious acts enough, then we can become one with God and be filled with deity. No, it's not that at all. But it's also not the Gnosticism which would say that, 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 that Christ has nothing to offer us. Rather, it says Christ was filled with deity and by faith in him, we have been filled, but not with deity. We don't become divine. None of this little God doctrine, Mormonism rubbish. Rather, rather, we are filled with what? We are filled with, as verse 2 said, full assurance. We receive what in him? As verse 3 said, the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. We receive full salvation, eternal life, a restoration back to true humanity. We receive all of that in Jesus, not because we become filled with deity, but because he is filled with the fullness and personal revelation of deity. So why do you not need to go asking these stupid philosophers and pagan uh, uh, evangelists whether you can have any of their cup into your religious bowl? Because they're empty and you are infinitely full. Secondly, the reason why you don't need to go back to this, uh, this legalism and this human tradition is that Jesus, Christ, has also given us true spiritual circumcision. Look at verse 11. In him also you were crucified, uh, sorry, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by, putting, by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. We've reminded ourselves most weeks that the Colossian heresy was not clean and neat. It sort of had a, a, a mixture of a whole bunch of different heresies. And one of them was that paganism and that, uh, that, that, that accessing the divine angelic beings and whatnot. Part of the other element of it was that it was mingled in with Jewish legalism. And so the Jews were saying that it's great you believe in Christ, Colossians. It's great that you believe in Jesus, but Jesus was the Jewish Messiah sent from the Jews' God and died according to the Jewish prophecies. So you need to go and become a Jew before you can take Jewish salvation. And the way you become a Jew, I'm so glad you've asked, is that the men need to undergo circumcision. And here Paul is saying that you have no need to go and be circumcised. These men have no need to go and give themselves back over to the old shadow, the old type, the Old Testament way of doing it, not because circumcision is irrelevant and it was a mistake and God's done away with it now, but because it was always pointing to something more glorious. It was always a shadow and the substance has come. It was always a, a, a symbol and the reality has arrived. Now, let me just do a little bit of an in-house push against my Presbyterian brothers and sisters. He does not say that the fulfillment of that circumcision is now baptism. 
He rather says that the fulfillment of circumcision is our regeneration through the cross of Christ and the picture of that regeneration is now baptism. Baptism doesn't replace circumcision. Baptism happens through faith, we'll see. But, but circumcision is fulfilled in regeneration, is in our being made alive from out of the uncircumcision of our flesh, according to verse 13. But to come back to Paul's main point, he's saying you don't need to go back and walk along the path of Jewish legalism and try and tick off those old laws because you have been crucified. You are already crucified. Uh, Circumcised, rather. You are already circumcised. And, and then we have to ask, because this is a pressing question, when did that happen? That was not a part of the Christian discipleship that we did the circumcision class. I would have missed it if that was there at all. Here's what he says. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is a spiritual circumcision. You were circumcised not by hands and not by a rock or a blade in the normal physical way. You were circumcised in the true way, in the spiritual way, without hands. And here's where different translations will put it out a little bit differently. Uh, but, but basically, it, it should be this. By the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. It does not mean that Christ does a circumcision to us spiritually. It is not, so, which some people believe, and it's not super, super bad, but I don't think that's what it's saying. Rather, I'm going to, I'll stake my, my reading on that with the majority of translators who are saying that it's the circumcision with which Christ was circumcised. We have received a circumcision without hands that is a spiritual circumcision when Jesus Christ went before the Father and was circumcised. Or as it says there, when he put off the body of flesh. The Old Testament symbol of circumcision was in order to sort of show that to be made right with God, in order to come into covenant with God, there, there had to be a severing, a slicing, a bloody sacrifice whereby the flesh was removed from life. There was a, there, there, there was a, there was a symbol there, that, that flesh, that, which became a, a sign of the, of the sinfulness, the sinful nature, so that the prophets in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, uh, uh, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah, they would be commanding the Israelites, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Have your hearts circumcised before God. Or they would promise of the new covenant when God would circumcise the heart of all of his people. What circumcision symbolized was the removal of flesh from the Christian, from the believer in God. And what Jesus did, our ultimate circumcision was in that Jesus Christ symbolized our fleshly nature. He took upon himself our sinful deeds and he went before God and he was there cut off in a bloody way. He was there severed from uh, all that he had enjoyed before. He was in that sense circumcised. And how does that become applied to us? Verse 13 says that you have been made alive out of the deadness and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That is that, that he was circumcised and therefore gets your sinful flesh, you know, sin, sinful nature separated and taken away from you when? Not according to the regulations and the, and the traditions and the Jewish laws that they're making you follow. That's not how you put away your sinful flesh like Martin Luther whipping himself in order to try and atone for his own sin. That's not how you put away your sinful flesh. Your sinful flesh was given to Christ. He died, he rose again, and that new life is given to you in your regeneration. That when God comes to a sinner, he does not find a helpful uh, little sidekick who's pretty keen and ready to help out with salvation. 
He does not come to us and find us a little bit sick and just needing the right spiritual medication. He comes to us, every one of us, and finds us as rotting corpses turned against God, despising of his law and his nature, rotting in the ground. And what does he do? He doesn't come to us and give us advice. He doesn't come to us and give us some help. He comes to us and makes us alive. This is what the, 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 the New Testament teaches about our depravity before God and our regeneration. A regeneration, a being made spiritually alive, which occurs before you have faith. The dead soul does not believe, then receive life. The dead soul is called to life, then places their faith in Christ for their justification. So he made us alive through, the, through what Jesus Christ did there on the cross in his being circumcised for us. So you don't need to go and get circumcised, Colossians. Now, number three, Christ is our death and resurrection. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. When we speak of, uh, of New Testament, new gospel, new, new covenant blessings in Jesus Christ, the one that stands high and above all of them and is really the source of all of the others is our union with Christ. The fact that you, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how great your Christian life has been or weak it has been, no matter how bad your previous month has been or tremendous your month has been, the thing... The ultimate source and the ultimate blessing in the gospel is that God has unified you or placed you into Jesus Christ. That's why Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians, the, the letters of Paul are filled with this language of union, filled with this language of in Christ. And when we are established as in Christ through faith and through the spiritual un unity that comes by the Holy Spirit, then God can say of us, everything that he can say of his son. In every way that Jesus represented us, once we are made one with him, we, it, that can then be said of us. And so, of course, you're a, you're a sinner before the law of God in your own standing. You've broken God's law. You deserve death and after death and eternal punishment. An unending condemnation and torment in order to, to justify, pay back the debt and the penalty for your sin. That's you in your own standing. Now, if you want to go in heaven, if you want to be one with God, you require two things, both a finished payment. You need to go to hell for eternity unending. And then after that, which there is no after that, you can then consider your payment fully paid. And also, also, if you want to get into God's good books according to the law and according to justice, you have to be able to provide a perfect, human, righteous, lived life. And here is Jesus Christ. That, that, that in our own standing, we have none of those things. We have none of those things. Therefore, we will go to hell. But, but in Jesus, we have somebody who died and died for us. Did you die? No, you're here. You have currently, I don't think this is uh, too complex for anybody, you're currently not dead. This is not heaven. I don't think this is what hell will be like. Uh, but no, you're not dead. So in what sense can you say to the law of God and through the law of God up to God himself and say, I've already died. Every death that the sin I had done, every dying element, every part of dying because of my sin, I've already done it. Death 
has been done on my account. I am already dead. And in what sense can you look at God through the law of God and say, and every requirement you have of me, I've already fulfilled. I have a perfect human righteousness and life before you. How can you say that? You can say that because Jesus Christ was your death and was your life and is also your resurrection. That you were made one with him and therefore you died with him, you rose with him. In Galatian language, in chapter 2, verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. For, for he gave himself for me, and now through faith I live for him. It's, it's the fact that, that I'm dead in Christ, I'm now resurrected in Christ by my faith. And how do we picture that? How do we picture the fact that you died with Christ, you live with Christ, and now you are a new creature? We baptize people. That's why we, we put people under the water because you're dead and buried with Christ. That's why we raise them up because you're now living and raised out of your sin with Jesus Christ. And that's what he means here in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. There is, there is no, I mean, the, the, the Colossian heretics and every cult and heretic out there is just losing things that they can tempt true Christians with. You read Colossians and you realize they have nothing else to tempt any of the Christians who know their Jesus, who know their gospel, who know their Bible. They have nothing to tempt them with. They can't convince them to get circumcised because they've already got the fulfillment of that. They can't convince them to, uh, to, to come to us to get a true spiritual life because they've already got that in regeneration. They can't come to us in order to receive the, the real uh, spiritual resurrection. No, they've, they've already got that. We can't convince them to come to us to get filled because they're already filled in Christ and they know it. And here's the glorious, the glorious little phrase that's tucked at the end of verse 13 there. They can't convince us that there's anything to do to earn forgiveness because we have the forgiveness of every debt in Jesus Christ. Look at the end of verse 13. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. In verse 14, he explains how that happened. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And God looks at you. He can, you know, this is where we start distinguishing between what God did for us and what God did to us. What God did for us was give his son, impute our sin to his son, kill his son for us, raise his son for us, that's, uh, and, and consider us as in him in all those things. That's what he did for us. That's what he did outside of us. And then we, we spoke about what he did to us, inside of us. He raised us up. He circumcised our hearts. This again comes to what he did outside of us. His end, and, and yet face-to-face -face did it to us. He forgave all of our trespasses. This is, this is personal language. This is not entirely uh, just legal. It's no longer using the financial language. This is now using, using language of persons. Because according to the law, you could pay all that you needed to pay to return to me what you stole. You could technically be punished to the full extent of the law in any given country for when you murdered my wife, murdered a living, uh, loved one of mine, took something precious to me. You could pay all of those things and technically be justified before the law. And that doesn't mean that you have any of my forgiveness. 
given just the moment, I, can, I would still want to come after you. You and I are still no longer in relationship. I still, though you're justified according to the law, I still hold everything you did against you. And this is the beauty of God, that we cannot separate and pull apart God's justice and his grace. You know, never get into this thinking of the gospel where God was so wrathful and just, but then his love came in and somehow won in some cosmic arm wrestle against his own self. No, it's, it's not that God's love triumphed his, his, his justice. It's not that his grace triumphed his holiness. It is that God put himself in full glorious manifestation through the cross where both his justice and his gracious love were shown to us. And so if you can say before the law, if you can say, according to the word of God, there is no transaction that stands against me, then you can have the confidence to go before God and say, you have fully forgiven me. Personally, we are in right relationship. Am I perfect yet? Not at all. Am I even asking that question? Not at all. Does God ask that question? Not at all. He does not ask that you be perfect to come to him as a forgiven sinner. He tells you that he loves you in Jesus Christ. Friend, it is a powerful thing to know that God doesn't just legally, technically, financially tolerate you because Jesus fulfilled some things. He forgives you. He loves you. He delights to consider none of your offenses against you. He is our Forgiveness And verse 14 tells us how. He did not undo his justice. He did not see the record of debt that stood against us. This is, a, this is going back to financial language. This is using the, 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 the notion and the language of the financial script of all of your debts that were written out, all of the things that you had done against God, and it stood against you and condemned you and made legal demands on you. And God did not look at them and say, yeah, you know, you made some mistakes. There's a few infringements, a couple of accidental, uh, 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 you know, uh, picadillos and things here. But, you know, we can really deal with that. We can just scrunch up this legal record, throw it under the, throw it under the mat. It's not that big of a deal. No. It does not say in this text that he set it aside. It says that he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. It's such a vivid picture here for us. That Jesus became for us the place where in the lashings and the beatings and the whippings, our sins were being scribed onto his flesh. Jesus became for us that letter of record, that, that list of our debts. And as he was put onto the cross and the nails were driven through his bones, driven through his ligaments, slaughtering and, and splitting and, 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 and butchering his flesh, Jesus became that way that our sins were set aside and nailed to the cross. God sweeps no one's sins under the rug. Every sin will be paid for either at the cross or in hell. God is a just God. But in his infinite, merciful grace, he decided that he himself would take our sin onto himself in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then one of the last temptations or ideas that the, the heretics would have had, and this is common in ancient uh, religion, it's still common today in, in all kinds of spiritualistic religion, is the idea that there's something you need to do. Oh, pagan spiritualistic religion. Some of you guys have lived this in former versions of Christianity. Let's just say that. Former wrong occultic versions, some, sometimes maybe not that bad, but definitely erroneous. That there is something you need to do to escape from the spiritual authority of the devil. You've got to bind him every week. That's one of them. You've got to be able to give yourself over to this 
This sacramental ideology whereby taking the Lord's Supper becomes, this, this is new apostolic reformation garbage, just by the way, whereby by taking those sacraments, you sort of cleanse yourself and protect yourself against the spiritual forces, that there's all kinds of strange things you can do and need to do in order to keep yourself in Christ, in order to fight the devil and fight the demons and keep yourself out of their grasp. No, guys, friends, Paul has said, that the way that you have all of your curses broken, the way that you have had your generational curses broken, the way that you are no longer within the grip of the devil is not because of something you did. It's because of something that has been done for you. Verse 15, he, that is God, he disarms the rulers and authorities. This is spiritual language. The rulers and the authorities, the spiritual rule, the spiritual authorities, the demonic forces, and of course, the head, the devil. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The, the devil is called in scripture, the accuser. In Zechariah's prophecy, there's a vision of him standing before God to accuse and, throw, and say that somebody's not worthy of being in God's presence. He's, he's called the accuser of the brethren who accuses us for our sins night and day before God in a, in a vision picture of Revelation chapter 12. He, was, he is the one who accuses, and until the death of Jesus Christ, accuses fairly, justly, and with full authority. That you, your name comes up like in the, like in the scene of uh, Job chapter 1. Uh, your name comes up and there the devil punches your number, pulls out your record of debt and shows God that they have no right to be in your presence. They have no right to call on your name. They have no right to be considered righteous. Look at the record of debt. And so they were given over to his, to his play, to his destruction, to his corrupting influence. But now it says that he is put to open shame. The devil runs, punches your number, pulls it out. He doesn't find it. An empty sheet. He finds a sheet that puts him to shame because on your record before God, which obliterates his authoritative influence to you, is the righteousness of Jesus in his life and death. The devil has no authority over you except for the fact that he has influence still in this world as he is being thrown and cast down. The demons do not need to occupy your mindset and your Christian thinking about spiritual warfare and how, you know, whether you'll stay right with God and how you'll overcome them today. Friends, by faith in Jesus Christ, John says, we overcome the world. Our faith is that weapon because by faith, we believe the gospel. By faith, we acknowledge what God has said about us in Jesus Christ. By faith, we acknowledge that we are righteous and therefore the devil and his hordes have no authoritative claim. They've been put to open shame in Jesus Christ. He has triumphed over them in the cross. And therefore, to the tempted, confused Colossians being encircled by these heretics, they have learned they have no need to disarm the spiritual enemies. Jesus has done it by his death and resurrection. They have no need to try and earn forgiveness. Jesus has done it by his death and resurrection. They have no need to try and push their way into spiritual life. They already have been given it in Jesus' death and resurrection. They have no need to... to uh, Submit again to circumcision. They have already had that in Jesus' death and resurrection. They have no need to seek the fullness of God anywhere else. They already have it in Christ who became for them through his death and resurrection a gift of grace. 
Tolerate no distraction. Tolerate no temptation away from Jesus to something that seems more exciting. It is always bait on the end of a hook to take your soul to hell. And friend, that counts for you as well if you're not yet in Jesus. You've already taken hook, line, and sinker, swallowed it whole, the lies that will condemn your soul. If you're outside of Christ and you still live according to your flesh, doing what your heart desires, breaking God's law, living your own way, rejecting the gospel command to repent, rejecting the gospel promise that in Jesus you have eternal life, if that is you, you have no greater need than tonight, come to the throne of grace. Jesus welcomes you and invites you with his gracious command. Come all who are hungry and thirsty. Come all who are still laden with the weight of your sins. Come and receive forgiveness, new life, redemption, resurrection of the soul. Come to him for he is willing to pardon and save. Let's pray. Father God, we are at our strongest when we know the most about the gospel. We are at our most immune against heresy when we know and can, and can verbalize and we can commit ourselves to the most in-depth reality about Jesus Christ. I thank you that it's not our understanding of the gospel that saves us, but Jesus Christ in the gospel. It's not our ability to defend justification by faith that justifies us, but it is Christ alone who we believe. We thank you for this. But we pray also, Lord God, that you would, as Paul has written, that you would keep us, you would make us zealous and, 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 and energetic in our seeking to not be taken captive. That you would make us people who love the truth, who understand the truth, who can apply the truth and fight spiritual warfare with the truth against those things which would distract us away from Jesus. I do pray, Lord God, for a, a preservation and a protection amongst all of our people that heresies and that lies and that cultic uh, falsehoods would not take them astray, that we would be uh, uh, a group of people who, who, who are a bastion against those lies together, that look after one another, that hide ourselves in the truth of Jesus Christ for our salvation. And I pray, Lord God, especially that you would make, uh, you would make alive those who are, who are still dead. We pray that you would give that gracious gift of spiritual life and forgiveness and redemption and freedom to those who are still dead in their sins. Lord God, please, by your Holy Spirit, bring them to Jesus. Allow us to, to see in their life their faith and their baptism and their joining us and their going to heaven with us. Lord God, please do this by your mercy and your grace. And we pray with faith and expectation because we pray in the name of your Son. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.